love you so that we might follow you. Help us, because of this word, to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called in Christ Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it is good to be back. It was a, a, a long journey, let's just say that. So I got sick on a Friday evening, and by uh, Saturday, I knew very, this was two weeks ago, I knew very well, like, hey, Daniel, guess what? You get to, get to preach tomorrow, hope you have something. And uh, did that, I sent him my outline, which he promptly destroyed and <laughs> did something different, <clears throat> which I kind of figured would happen, but you know, hey. So we did that. And then a few days later, right, I, I have this big camp that we do with Child Evangelism Fellowships called Christian Youth in Action, and we train uh, high schoolers and young adults to go out in the summer and to share the gospel with kids all over Southern California. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be enjoyable to be thoroughly sick and and trying to do this thing. So that, that following Friday, I was feeling like, uh, okay. And, but other than the fact that I felt like someone had taken a bat and hit the, my back like all over for days. And so I was walking around and doing that. And then you're reminded on Saturday when the kids actually came that they're teenagers. And they wake up at 11 p.m. And so when I was ready to like crash in a dorm room with an awful bed, they were ready to just get started. <laughs> and it was like chasing cats all over the dorm room and everything with all of the leaders. And, but quite honestly, they're incredible uh, young adults and it was a lot of fun. And uh, we got done Friday night at 9 p.m. Yesterday, we were tearing everything down and bringing it back. And so I think I'm here. I'm not sure about it, but I think I am here. Anyway, uh, it's been a great few weeks. They, they were trained to you know, reach and teach children with the gospel, and we had 14 different sites, and we had, uh, uh, I think, close to 300 kids show up to those sites, and we had uh, 30 children, 38, sorry, 38 children accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the very first time uh, in, in that. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. And uh, these 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds are the ones that are sharing the gospel and counseling them and leading them to Christ. That's pretty awesome. And uh, so it was, it was a great week, but it's good to be back. And if you're noticing, I'm this is a good thing for me to hold on to this morning. No, we're good. We're good. So Daniel read the first few verses here of Isaiah chapter 23, and, and really the, the Word of God has amazing power. Amen? And what I mean by that today is that it can actually transport you geographically in a lot of different places and times. We can move from wherever we are at to a distant location. We can, we can actually move across time as well. We go, we go back to creation. We go back in the Old Testament here into Old Testament times. We go forward to the end of the earth. We go forward to heaven. Uh, the, the Word of God is amazing where it transports us. 
We can learn spiritual lessons in history. We can learn spiritual lessons in the future. And that's, once again, what we're going to do today. By the power of God's Word, by the power of His Spirit, we're going to be transported from West Hills Church in in our little spot of the world here. We're going to sit in a harbor city of Tyre. That's where we're going. We're going we're gonna to learn the lesson of this oracle. Maybe we're going to look over this coastal city as it burns and smolders, as it's being conquered by an army after an army. And we're going to, we're going to seek to learn a spiritual lesson this morning that God has for us concerning the fall of this city. And so like Daniel said, it's been a two-week break, but we're jumping back into the section of Isaiah in which he's dealing with these oracles against the nations. So there you see in verse 1 of 23 how it's this oracle concerning Tyre. This is the tenth of such oracles, one after another, from you know Isaiah 13, essentially up through 23, one oracle, one burden after another. So this is the final one, a specific one against a nation state, a, a city, really. The first of these was in Isaiah 13 against Babylon. And then once again, we went through a series of them one after another. So now we're at this final one, and we're going to take a turn next week and move past these in, in, in a really interesting way. So hold on to that thought. But this is this last one with Tyre, this, this wealthy merchant city. And in the process of going back to Isaiah chapter 13 and to here in, in Isaiah 23, you got two different patterns of world dominance that you see. You see a military dominance in Babylon. You see in this, you will see an economic dominance. And those are the bookends of the oracles. Babylon, Tyre. Babylon, Tyre. You have the power to build an empire by military means in in Babylon. The power of Babylon is the power to, to conquer, to rise up, to build a military machine that can just steamroll one nation after another and build a mighty empire. It's pictured in Daniel chapter 7, a series of beasts and animals uh, come up out of the sea one after another, all of them with this power to, to crush, to devour their enemies, their neighbors. That's the power of Babylon. So what is Tyre? Well, it deals with a different kind of power, economic. The the merchants of this city are not really trying to dominate their neighbors per se. They're trying to befriend them. They're trying to shake their hands and smile at them. Not because they care about them, but because they want to get something. They want their money. They want their stuff. I was thinking about this this week. What's the best way for us these days to kind of picture this? Solar panel salespeople. Solar panel salespeople. Now, it's always dangerous when I do these types of illustrations. Someone's going to come up to me afterwards and says, that's what I do. (laughs) So I get that. But you understand what I'm getting at. When you see that person walking down your street and they got the, the vest on, you know they're either with the gas company, the electric company, or they're trying to sell you solar panels. 
And when they get closer, you see, oh, it's Solar City or whatever, and you go running for the hills. But you can picture this guy trying to build a relationship. Hey, I, I'm Scott. And, and by the way, just a side note here. For two weeks, I sold solar panels. You know how many I sold? Zero. Exactly. I, I got done with one day of it. And I was like, this is stupid. I am not a sales guy. And so I quit. Anyway, it didn't matter to them. I didn't make any money anyway. But it's this idea of building a relationship, trying to gain worldly influence for the sake of monetary success and, and for money. And the Lord speaks through these oracles with Babylon and Tyre. And amazingly, the same word is really spoken against both of them for the same reason. The Lord is going to lay them down, these lofty cities. He's going to lower the boom on them. He's going to humble the pride of all of human glory uh, at, at one time or another and then ultimately in all time. And it's military, it's military empire, it's economic, it's lofty towers, high towers, it's trading ships, everything. Every lofty mountain will be leveled and made low because the Lord is the one to be exalted. All the idols will be totally vanished. And this is what we see here. And as, as Daniel read in those first seven verses, which really kind of give us the, the groundwork of seeing the picture of the city by the sea. We need to understand that because Babylon and Tyre, the book ends around Isaiah's vision of nations, we actually know that a little bit from the, old, from the New Testament as well. The book of Revelation, John sees the whole world as one vast what? Babylon. Revelation 14, Revelation 16, Revelation 17 through 19. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, Revelation 18, 2. And that's, that's the way John shares the end of the world culture that we live in. He, it's the fall of Babylon. And on one hand, so you have this fall of Babylon. But on the other hand, John also describes our world as a tire, a, a, a prostitute out hustling the nations. In Revelation 17... Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And so there's this prophetic vision of Babylon and Tyre together into one understanding of our world. And when you really think about it, isn't that kind of the understanding of the world? You got power and you've got stuff. And all of the other things that fill the gaps within that, it typifies all fallen human societies, political and commercial. Babylon had land power. Tyre had sea power. Babylon used force. Tyre used seduction. The strategies were different from one culture to the next. But what matters in one kingdom of man is, is maybe money and power, and then you also have ego and pleasure, and all of those things belong to time. All of those things belong to the time that we are in, not to eternity. All of those things that are the bookends of these oracles belong to a costly, empty world. 
And the prophets understood the power of Babylon and Tyre, of this world. They, they saw that the world is not only the opponent of faith, it also seduces those of faith. The world not only just punishes those that follow Christ, the world also panders, tempts, tries to pull believers away from Christ. And Satan doesn't care which way makes you fall. He's going to use harsh intimidation. He's going to use soft seduction. Whatever works. Whatever works to make you lose sight of Christ so that your faith no longer overcomes this world. I mean, that's Satan's goal. That's the spiritual battle that's fought deep in our hearts every day. And so when we start looking at this, verses 1 through 7, Wail, O inhabitants, in verse 6 of the coastland. Is this your jubilant city, whose origin is from iniquity, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? Oh, how great you were! But oh, how low you will become. As this last one states. So let's move forward in this as we've got an introduction here. Let's move into more of the meat of what God has commanded against these people as Zach reads for us verses 8 through 14. Who has planned this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has planned it to defile the pride of all beauty, to despise all the honored of the earth. Overflow your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more restraint. He has stretched his hand out over the sea. He has made the kingdoms tremble. The Lord has given a command concerning Canaan to demolish its strongholds. He has said, you shall exult no more, O crushed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, pass over to Cyprus, even there you will find no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this is the people which was not. Assyria appointed it for desert creatures. They erected their siege towers, they stripped its palaces, they made it a ruin. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for your stronghold is destroyed." This once great civilization would suffer at the hands of our Lord, as it says in verses 8 and 9 there. The, the punishment of Tyre is, again, linked to God's plan. Amen? This is all part of God's plan. And it's a plan to bring down low those honored by humanity for this symbolism of power. And you, as, as you see there, as it's described as a stronghold, actually another word that you would see in some of your translations would be fortress. That's there. It was very, very difficult to conquer both the land-based city and the harbor-based city. And you can picture in this one, how many of you have been up to the Bay Area with Alcatraz? It's kind of how you can kind of picture this, except, you know, larger than that. Rocky Island just offshore, high, lofty, protected walls. This, this stronghold, the fortress is used here. If you look at verse 11, as it concerns that, 
uh, it then turns to plural in strongholds or fortresses. So this is a very powerful city-state. Very, very difficult to conquer. It's difficult to conquer because one of the things you do with a walled citadel is you surround it and you starve it to death. Well, that just doesn't happen in this merchant type of city. They're, they're very good on the water. They can be resupplied from their colonies. So it's hard to starve them to death. There's, there's really no chance to do that. You can't actually even get into the island fortress. If you, if you don't have a navy, you're not going to have any sort of chance of subduing it. So it's a very, very difficult area to conquer. And this was an extremely wealthy merchant city. And we know that they had good relationship with Israel at times. We know that through the Bible that David and Solomon uh, had a good relationship with the king of Tyre. Uh, the king sent down what to them? Well, he sent down the cedars of Lebanon. Not for free, by the way. And he sold them to David in exchange for wheat. David's son Solomon was able to build his, build his palace and also the temple of God from this trade with Tyre. This is a very powerful, incredible city that had a vibrant relationship with Israel. And if you put your finger there in Isaiah 23, and if you turn over to Ezekiel 27, you actually will have a sense even more, uh, verses 12 through 23 of Ezekiel 27, even more of just how amazing the, the trade was of this area. And I'm not going to read all of this, but I'm just going to catch uh, some the trade value here. Great wealth of goods, exchanging silver, iron, tin, lead for your merchandise, uh, articles of bronze for your wares, exchanging workhorses, war horses, mules for merchandise, uh, were, uh, paid you with ivory, tusks, and ebony. Uh, they, Aram did business with you because of your many products and turquoise, purple fabric, embroidered work, fine linen, coral, rubies for your merchandise. Judah and Israel traded with you. They exchanged wheat and, and, and confections and honey and balm for your wares. Damascus, because of your many products and great wealth of goods, did business with you in wine and wool. Uh, you've got wrought iron, you've got saddle blankets, you've got lambs and rams and goats, you've got the finest of all kinds of spices and precious stones and gold. I mean, that's just like in 10 verses. You sit there and you go, wow, these guys were like the, you know, they were the Mecca of trade. They had everything going on. So you could just picture all of the different trade going on in this city. This, this place was dripping with wealth and money and influence that way. You, you get that picture of vast wealth there and the nature of their trade to the colonies. And once again, if you go all the way back to verse 1 of Isaiah 23... 
The oracle concerning Tyre, I wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. You get this idea that these ships are coming from faraway places. They're making their way, they're sailing across the Mediterranean. Their, their, their bowels are, are pushing the water aside. The wake is trailing behind them and they're full of all of this stuff and they haven't heard what's happened to Tyre yet. They haven't heard the news. It's not until they get to Cyprus, which is the big island in eastern Mediterranean, that they finally hear, hey, Tyre's destroyed. There's nowhere for you to unload your cargo. You're going to have to go somewhere else. And it's actually a pretty dramatic scene. I mean, this was bam. They weren't expecting it. They hadn't heard the news. Now, why, why is this relevant? Well, not just here in Isaiah 23, but also in Ezekiel 26 and 27, you have this prophecy against Tyre. And it's actually exposed as a satanic stronghold. Really, what you get here is the force behind the economic might and power. And the force was a satanic force. Satan is there. Now, you're not getting that from Isaiah 23 completely. You're getting that something's up. But if you go to Ezekiel 27, if you go to Ezekiel 28, you're going to see an amazing thing because Tyre's described as a city, as it was, but the king of Tyre is described in a really interesting way. You see, the prophecy there is directed against the king of Tyre. And the language of this prophecy reaches a spiritual level. And everyone hang with me on this because I'm, I'm switching something up on you here that you need to hang with. The language of this prophecy makes it very difficult to think that this is a human king, this king of Tyre. Let me just read for you seven verses out of Ezekiel 28. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your, your, your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a garden guardian cherub, so, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God 
and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you, and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a terrible end and will be no more. Does that sound like a regular king? It's only, it can only be one thing, right? Garden of God. He was in Eden. He was on the mountain of God. He was exalted. He was perfect in beauty. He was in some way holy and pure on the day that he was created until wickedness was found in him. This is speaking of the fall of Satan. And this actually, matter of fact, if we want to take a little side note here, because I had, I, had, I had two teenagers ask me this incredibly easy question to answer this week was, how was wickedness found in Satan to begin with? Like, oh, that's an easy one to answer. Where did that come from? Really, there's no real good answer to give people in that. In some way, God gave him the freedom to become wicked through the, the wickedness did not come from God. He was cast down. He was expelled from the mountain of God, thrown down to earth. I mean, you read through these verses, right? And you know you're not talking about a human king anymore. And it's the same kind of thing that happened over in Isaiah 14. Right after the oracle against Babylon, the prophet turns his guns on the king of Babylon and uses the same type of language. You know, it says, I will ascend to the mountain of God. I will make myself like the most high. All of this lofty language but he's going to be thrown down. It's the same message. And the point of the bookends, once again, everyone, of Babylon and Tyre, it's the same king. The same king. Satan loves to hide himself behind human puppets. Behind human kings is the puppet master, Satan orchestrating their comings and goings and dealings, military conquests, widespread trade, and the love for things of the world behind all of that is Satan. Satan is only unmasked in one place, the Word of God. That is where Satan is unmasked. It makes perfect sense because he doesn't reveal himself openly, right? He didn't go to Eve in the garden and say, Hey, Eve, I'm Satan. How are you? I've come to destroy your world. No, he comes clever. Not what he appears to be. Disguises himself as what Scripture says as an angel of what? Light. He's attractive. He's alluring. And that danger is there for all of us. 
when you think of Jesus being tempted by Satan, would you do as well as Jesus if you were shown all the kingdoms of the world in all of their splendor? Hey, Daniel, this could all be yours. I know you're getting married in a few weeks. That could be pretty good. Right? I mean, Satan tempts us and uses all of this, which we find in Babylon and Tyre, all of that to seduce us. Well, Satan's not offering all the kingdoms of the world to people like you and me. He doesn't have to. Just a little bit of glory, just a little bit of power, just a little bit of stuff, probably is enough for many. And we need to unmask Satan. We need to see behind Tyre. We need to see behind Babylon. We need to see what's going on. Because in our text, what happens to Tyre? It's destroyed. Now, the spirit will live on in Tyre. It's going to continue right to the end. And that leads us to the next really interesting part of this oracle as we finish this oracle out. Davis is going to come up and read verses 15 through 18 right now. And it's going to all of a sudden switch to a story of redemption. So Davis, go ahead and read that for us. Verses 15 through 18. Now in that day, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. Take your harp, walk about the city, O forgotten harlot. Pluck the strings skillfully, sing many songs that you may be remembered. It will come about at the end of 70 years that the Lord will visit Tyre. Then she will go back to her harlot's wages and will play the harlot with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded. But her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. You know, hold it, hold it. What? What's going on here? So you get the first part in verse 15 or 70 years, okay? We can, we've gotten that through all of these different oracles, all of those different times where, where the devastation of Tyre was, is, is going to happen in a specific time. wasn't permanent. A little, actually, a little village remains on the site of the ancient city to the present day. The time frame of the 70 years is probably 70 to 63 B.C. Alexander uh, the Great uh, at 332 B.C. would destroy Tyre. Um, and so you've got the 70-year time frame, but the surprise, it's kind of like the surprising end of a movie where all of a sudden... What was going to be destroyed will be redeemed. And Isaiah, you know, writes there in, in verse 18, her gain and her harlot's wages will be set apart to the Lord. It will not be stored up or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient food and choice attire for those who dwell in the presence of the Lord. If you go over to Psalm 45, 12, it says the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. All of a sudden, 
all of the stuff that was bad is now going to be good. Now, we just, as Daniel said, we just finished the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses was very clear, anything associated with the harlot, anything associated with prostitution could not be given to the Lord. It says that in Deuteronomy 23.18. It was dirty money. And what the picture here is, God is going to bring redemption into our corruption. Isaiah looks at our everything has a price culture, and would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, everyone kind of lives under this idea that, you know, hey, you everything, every person, everything can be bought for a price. And Isaiah looks at that and sees it redeemed, made holy for the Lord, devoted to God for the benefit of all who dwell with him. So he's implying, you don't envy Tyre. The future lies with the kingdom of God. The future lies with the redeeming grace of God. Everything that has been a part of this world is going to be redeemed, going to be made new. Amen? Everything is going to be made new and is for the use of God's people. You know, Jesus meant what he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And the lessons learned in this are very specific. First of all, God is in control of all nations. And man, we live in a time where we probably, just like many, many other generations before us, we live in a time where we go, okay, if God's in charge of all nations, why does he allow that nation to do that? Well, he can and will do with them what he pleases. There was a German scholar who said these words, and this is translated, so it's not exact. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. God's working. God is working completely. We, we see that in, in the book of Amos chapter 3 verse 6. If, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? God is in control of the nations of the world. Lamentations 3, who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Through all of these oracles from one book to the other, God is in control. He will do with them what he pleases. He will redeem them as he pleases. Another thing that we've seen through all of these, even here with this nation state of Tyre, God hates the sin of pride. When nations turn from the living God to trust in their wealth and their armaments, God will show them that he is the only solid 
sure refuge. When you turn from following Him and, and then you believe that you have attained everything you need, all of the things in life that you need, and you believe that God is not necessary, watch out. Proverbs 8, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Let me repeat that. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. God hates the sin of pride. Third, and this one's so big, is so easy when you read about Tyre, when you read about the power of Babylon, when you read of all of these, do not love the world. Do not love the world. You can feel the lure of it in here. The, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, the magnetic pull on people, the magnetic pull possibly on you, and it's hard to resist. And it's good for us to just acknowledge that, to admit that we have sometimes slept with the harlot. Worldliness. That we've allowed at times our heart to be lured away from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And there's been times where we have gone after worldly things. And as we've said a few weeks ago, confess it. Confess it. Repent. Wail over it. Be ashamed about it. Turn away from it and hate it. Genuine repentance includes hating sin. And that question stands in front of you. One of the things that life as a pastor entails is me putting a question in front of you. And it's your job to answer it. Not out loud. It's just your job to answer it. Are you living too much for the things of this world? We live in a really interesting time for those that have had a, a lot of money that they've stored up over the last few years, maybe decades. And I know people that 10 times a day are checking how much money they've lost in their 401k, in their IRA, in their investments. And like every day, they're going, I've lost 20%. I've lost 21%. Okay, it's a little better. I've lost 17%. Oh, it's not okay. I've now lost 23%. Who ever told me to invest in crypto? <laughs> and people are just living too much for the things of this world. What does God do with that, living for the things of this world? He brings it down. He wipes it down. Now, does God want you to free up more of your resources for the advancement of his kingdom? It's a heart change. 
It's a heart change. This last week, as I told you, we had all of these teenagers who had paid $500 each to be trained to share the gospel to children. They could have gone to any camp on the planet and have had a pool and paint gun wars and, and all of that fun stuff, and we have none of that. You spend five to six hours a day studying Bible verses and learning how to share the gospel. And they're paying 500 bucks a pop for that. That's why I think they're rock stars. It's just amazing the difference of I'm not living for the things of this world. I'm living to share the gospel to this world because that's what changes everything. That's what changes people's future. And then on top of that, we did offering times with them, and they raised almost $2,000 between them at the camp. You know, every evening we took an offering, and it was going to be used to reach more kids, more five-day clubs. And those teenagers apparently brought enough Money for $2,000 more, cash. And, and, and I just sit there and I go, okay, these, these guys kind of get it. They're 14, 15, 16 years old. And they're sacrificially giving so more and more kids can know the Lord. Or are you the person that's sitting in front of the computer all day long watching your 401k disappear? Right? Are you living too much for the things of this world? See, those are all questions that we have to face as believers. And Scripture helps us face it. I don't want to fall into the trap of Satan between Babylon and Tyre. Between power and the seduction of resources. Now, don't get me wrong. Did I say anywhere that having money is wrong? It's what we do with what God has given us. How do we steward that? The scripture will help you face it. Keep in front of you the rest of your life. And so that's the lesson learned there. And also, you need to understand you know, in 1 John 2, it says, Do not love the world nor the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Thirteen-year-old kid came up to me probably on Wednesday. And he's all, Scott, I got to share Christ with someone today. It was the first time anyone ever ever got to do that. And, this, and this, this little guy accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. I will tell you that that 13-year-old's life has changed forever. He was blown away. 
He said, I think maybe I should go to Bible college. And I said, Master's University is an amazing school. You should just go there. <laughs> anyway, it just, it, 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 it rattled his world for the good. And that leads to our last point. God always gives a word of promise and hope to his people. Yes, Babylon will fall, but God's going to care for Judah. We see that in Isaiah chapter 14. Moab will not accept sanctuary from Jerusalem, but God will one day establish the Messiah's throne there. We see that in Isaiah 16. Assyria and Egypt may be avowed enemies of the Jewish people, but one day those three nations will glorify God together. We see that in Isaiah 19. No matter how frightening the national or international situations may be, God's children can have peace because we know the Almighty God is on His throne. We sing about it all the time. The nations may rage, kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, kingdoms plot against God, but he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Psalm 2. When the Lord of heaven and earth is your father, you will gladly wear Christ's yoke. You will have nothing to fear. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As this one version says, for my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. For my yoke is comfortable. It fits perfectly. It's not harsh. You don't wake up in the morning feeling like your back has been beaten with a baseball bat. It fits, God's plan for you fits perfectly in Christ. My yoke is comfortable, my burden is light. And that's why we've said in this series, be comforted. Be comforted that God saves, that God's in charge. And you will find that all God has for you is sufficient and his promises for you are incredible. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank